All right, welcome back to another episode of First Generation Bowhunter. This is episode 49. I'm here with Ryan Sapina with Seek Outside, and we are going to talk about all things um, gear, tents, hunting, conservation. Ryan, I'm laughing just because we had a funny little moment there before we uh, turned on it. I can't stop smiling. <laughs> um, I just sprayed uh, something in my mouth that makes my my voice uh, sound better. Um, yeah. Ryan, what's the line that you said? What, what did you say? Well, I said you got to look good, feel good, and then you play good. I had a football coach in high school that told me that and I, I try to apply that to everything. I mean, hunting, especially bow hunting. If you don't, if you don't look pimped out and you, you don't have the face paint on your, on your face, you're probably not going to kill anything. Are you a face <laughs> true, true, true this though? Like, are you a face paint fan? Do you, do you paint the face? I am. Yeah, I, I really am. And it's probably, uh, it's probably, probably not necessary. I, I'm not, uh, I, with, the revelations that the hunting industry has had with uh, the the solids being used in bow hunting and uh, i don't think it really does anything it just you know it's 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 a fun thing i like especially bow hunting man it just like it's so such a primal thing it gets you gets you into that you look in the mirror and you're like putting on your war paint maybe it comes from football you know putting on your eye black yeah you're getting ready to go out it just gets you in the mind space Maybe that's what it is. Maybe that's what I'm missing out on. Just getting that slight more level up of like yeah. getting in the mind space. Yeah. I don't think it does anything because <laughs> I think if you if you're moving, if you if you make a movement and you're not, you know, somewhat covered and you come to full draw, it's not gonna make a difference having face paint or not. Oh man. That I will is, say that. That was my thought though with this spray that I'm spraying in my mouth. It tastes a little minty and mm. But I was just telling Ryan, I'm like, it's a placebo. I'm sure it's like, it probably doesn't do anything. But someone made $8 off my Amazon purchase selling yeah, this. Yeah. Well, and hey, you know, like there's there's cases where people cure their cancer off placebo. So it's something. There's something we'll, there. We'll take it. We'll take yeah. it. I, and speaking of the face paint too, I think what would be cool is like build a fire with the charcoal and put mm. the charcoal on your face yeah yep that's definitely that, that would be the the truly traditional way to do to, it to or, smell like a fire yeah exactly or like beat up at like uh like mash up some plant roots or something like that mix them with some water then do it like or 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 the best is like the uh, aspen powder you know how aspens have like the powder on them you get a little bit of that stuff i i always heard that that you could use that as sunscreen so, and it was probably just my, my, my dad telling me that just to get a laugh out of it. But whenever we'd be walking through, like mostly just hiking, he'd be like, oh yeah, you guys forgot sunscreen. Go, go rub your hand on that Aspen and put some of that powder on your face and sunscreen. Is that I don't right know up if that's the, true. Is that up there with like blinker fluid? <laughs> it probably is. It probably is. Oh. It, it's so funny how like the, I feel like, uh, with like outdoor stuff you can really call any anything like a oh the native americans did it and people will just believe it oh you know well and now it's like people are way more into that in the last recent years of how they buy things yeah versus many years ago it was just like what was on the shelf and we just kind of trusted it now it's like there's this story right everything has yeah. to have a story 
Yep. It's got to have meaning. Man. Yep. We're in the wrong business. Well, if we, if things don't work out with seek outside and I, you know, just need a, a career change, we'll, we'll go into work together on Aspen, Aspen powder. Yeah. Yep. Yep. All yep. natural sun protection. Exactly. Ryan, you're with seek outside and you're a hunter, you're a bow hunter, you're a conservationist. You, I, I really want to make sure we uh, give Seek Outside podcast some love to make sure to check out some of their episodes. You've got some really solid guests on there. You've got people from Alone, like Clay Hayes. Uh, who else have you got? Giannis Patelis. I mean, solid folks having great conversations. What's been one of your most recent favorite episodes that you've done? Oh, man. Um, well, I, it's hard because we do a, do a ton of them. Um, and it kind of goes in phases, right? Because like putting podcasts out during hunting season and trying to get like Giannis Patelis on the podcast, it's just not going to happen from September to December. So we're kind of getting over that hump now to where like this next portion will probably be when we start having guests. Recently, we've been doing a lot of just in-house stuff with uh, with the boys here. Yeah. Um, but uh, oh, man, you know, I, I think one of my favorite episodes that we've ever done was uh with Hal Herring. Um and I believe that's episode 82 I want to say. Um okay. but uh whoever y'all can look it up if you want to see it. But Hal Herring is the big BHA guy. He actually runs the podcast and blast um that the backcountry hunters and anglers podcast that they produce. Um but he's he's a big time writer and he's written books all over the you know books and articles for everything and uh, he's a, he's a history of the public lands. Um, I don't know, maybe like connoisseur, no, not connoisseur, but just, uh, he, that's one of his fields of expertise is, uh, you know, the history of public lands and, um, you know, dating back all, all the way to their, their, uh, creation. Um, and I, I don't know, it was just fascinating. You kind of learn a lot of stuff about, uh, public lands. And I, I feel like a lot of times in, in America, uh, especially nowadays with the climate and stuff. And there's so many things to complain about. People often overlook that we really have the greatest, um, you know, one of the greatest governmental systems that's ever been created with our public land system. And, um, you know, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers has a, a T-shirt that says, you know, public landowner. And I think that's just unbelievable because we have 630 uh, million acres, um, that are, are federal. It's either that or 1.2. I forget exactly what it, it it's somewhere in there. It's, it's an absurd, uh, absurd amount of public lands, uh, that you can just go out to. And it's like, you're a, you're a, you know, there's 330 million people in America. It's like you're one 330 millionth percent owner in this giant swath of land. Well, if you do the math, if it's, I think it is 660, uh, million acres everybody's got two acres all to themselves hey. just for free for being an american <laughs> citizen and i i just love that uh thing about america and it, it gets overlooked so much i love my public landowner t-shirt i've got i've got one yeah. i think i've worn it so much in the last couple of years that it's like it's one of the t-shirts i've legit worn out which doesn't happen very often but I'm so proud to wear that. And like when I wear it at the gym, I, I just kind of get that double look where someone's like, and I'm like, 
don't look at me. It's you too. Like we're all yeah. this. It's not me. It's yeah. all of us. Yeah. Well, and a lot of people don't understand that, right? Like if, if they're not, it's a pretty niche group or a pretty slim group that actually, I think appreciates it. it's, it's, it's outdoor recreators and not even all outdoor recreators, right? It's like the hardcore ones, the people that are, you know, doing, doing through hikes, uh, doing the Appalachian trail, doing, you know, backcountry hunts, uh, that are really utilizing it. A lot of, you know, I talked to some of my friends, uh, who aren't hunters or fishermen and they don't even realize that we have all this, right. They're just, wow. it's like, you know, they think about going camping and it's like, Oh yeah, you go to a campground, but you don't realize that there's all this other space that you can go explore just whenever you want. As long as you don't stay in the same spot for 14 straight days in most places, <laughs> you're good. You can just, you can essentially live out there if you really wanted to. I wonder what our kids are going to experience when it comes to that. Like, how does that type of mindset really carry on, you know, this yep. next generation? Because I think that's one thing we all have a deep fear of is, is this all going to get super watered down, super saturated and just flutter away? Yeah. Oh, it's a, it's a real concern. I mean, there's, uh, there are definitely, there've been, uh, papers written, um, out there that talk about, you know, just, uh, the, the, the sterileness surrounding, you know, the, the passions of people, uh, regarding public lands and, and wildlife, you know, it's, it's kind of a forgotten thing, yeah. especially with, um, yeah, I mean, hunter numbers are, are going down as much as everybody in the West thinks that they're not, I mean, they really are. And, uh, you know, I was talking to somebody, uh, the other day from a government agency here in town and, uh, you know, all that they're talking about is that, you know, in the next 10 years, hunter numbers are going to decline so rapidly and and you know like a lot of people when they they hear that they don't necessarily know what all comes with that i mean it's not just uh pitman roberts pr dollars uh it's not just the passion for the outdoors but it's it's also the the wildlife right i mean a lot of people who are outside the space don't it is like they just can't compute they can't uh make sense that hunting is the, the killing an animal is actually saving all the other animals, you know? And, um, so I, I guess I'm kind of rambling here, but I, I think it is, I think, you know, I always talk about this with my conservation guests that we have on the podcast, but we're, I think that we're kind of coming to a precipice here where, um, we're, we're either gonna have a wake up call, at, um, not even a wake up call because I think that they're amongst hunters. There's a much greater appreciation for, uh, conservation now than maybe there was, you know, 10, 20 years ago because of things like meat eater and, and BHA and this kind of like, you know, back to the land movement. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, I, I think that we're at a precipice where if we, we can't get like the younger people, like the, the, people that right now are like 16 years old excited and jazzed about hunting or or fishing or or even backpacking and stuff like that we might we might start to see um some losses in the public land because i mean you you already see it with uh um you know you guys there in utah you had the senator that was trying to put up that uh 
that law, or I think it was a, a representative, and I'm horrible with names, so I can't remember his name, but the the Houses Act, right, where it was just basically going to sell off public land and and uh, use it to build houses and stuff like that. And yeah. um, I don't know. For me personally, I, I just I think that we're going to see much more of that if we can't get people excited because it's just it all comes down to as sad as it is, if it doesn't have value then nobody cares about it. Right. And if, if you're not, you know, like I'm not out here, <clears throat> I'm not out here, um, politicking for, uh, you know, more, my little pony, uh, sets to be made. <laughs> it's, it's just not, you know, or, or toy. I don't know. Yeah. If you don't care about it, it's, it's not going to be protected. So the uh, one, we, the one here in Utah, there was one up kind of northern where I'm at, way north of Salt Lake, and there was a big like sell off that was about to mm. happen. And yeah. in the hunting community, it might be the same one we're talking about. In the hunting community, it spread like wildfire, and mm. everyone came out. We all voted, we all had our voice, and it got squashed. And thankfully, we saved it. And yeah. that was that's real. I mean, that's that's a real deal. It's not fiction. It's not oh, I heard that. It's no, you got to show up. You got to write letters. You got to vote. Yeah. And, you know, I'm thankful for how that one ended, but that was kind of freaky because it's very near me. And that little public landowner t shirt starts to make a little bit more of an impact. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, a lot of our folks in the first generation bow hunter community are, you know, newer to the sport. We're excited. We're, we're trying new things. But what advice would you give to newer hunters who, you know, are, are killing their first animal, they're posting about it on social media. What kind of things can you tell people who are sharing those stories to just be thoughtful and be a good steward? Yeah. Well, I mean, I would say just uh, realize and, and appreciate it. I mean, that's all it is like, cause if you, if you appreciate it um, and, and you know, about the system, you know, about the American, the North American wildlife conservation system. And, and you can see that it's, it's better than, I mean, a lot of people don't may not know this who don't hunt, but I mean, there's, there's not a lot of countries outside of, uh, North, you know, North America's cause you, it's pretty easy in Canada and Mexico to, to go out and hunt and stuff like that. But, um, uh, away from our conservation model, there's not a ton of, countries where you can just go out, get a gun, uh, or a bow, um, and, and arrows and, uh, you know, just go walk around public land and, and, you know, try to try to get your own food and stuff like that. So I think appreciation is probably the number one thing. And then, <clears throat> you know, just, I mean, like every, if you're, if you're, uh, an archery hunter or, a uh, a rifle hunter, most of the things that you're going to be buying are going to be contributing, putting back into conservation, right? Um, which is awesome. But a lot of that's a lot of that money goes to um, the, you know, the game agencies, it kind of goes back into that whole thing. Whereas, you know, a lot of the conservation agencies, RMEF, BHA, TRCP. Um, <clears throat> and I know that's a lot of acronyms there, but uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm hopefully people know, but like Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, one of their big uh, movements is is buying land, right? Buying pieces of whether it's a, a piece of um, 
private land that's that could possibly go into you know development um, or if it's just a piece of private land that connects two pieces of public land they're trying to conserve elk habitat and i mean i just i don't think that there's ever um too much money going into conservation just because and you know everybody has different opinions on how money should be spent but if you're if you're as if you're passionate about the outdoors i mean it could always be um there could always be more money in there because of you know kind of the the siege that it's under just with population growth and stuff like that um so i think you know just just uh putting time putting money back into conservation uh you know it's 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 kind of like the many many hands make small work right like even if it's just 35 a 35 dollar membership to backcountry hunters and anglers or you know 50 to rmef or something like that a year that all that stuff adds up and you got more elk that's great now i so that's a good breakdown because with new people entering the sport i think regardless of how long someone's been a hunter when other followers on social media see that person say like, Oh, I, you know, I got a deer this season or whatever. They don't look at them as like, you're new or you've been doing it for 20 years. They're just like, Oh, you're a hunter. Mm-hmm. And they don't have maybe some background, right. Mm-hmm. Of how that person got there. And so I think it's, you know, it's good to be respectful to like how we talk about, you know, the animal. And I, I try to be very thoughtful of when I share photos, right. Mm-hmm. And what, what what photo do I share with my friends and what photo do I share out there on social media and, and being thoughtful yeah. of that, you know? Yeah. Because uh, that's where things get tricky is people get fired up on what that's not fair and that animal suffer. You know, it's like <laughs> it gets a little tricky and people get fired up. That's the other thing too, like trail etiquette. I mean, I hunt some areas where there's tons of hikers, tons mm. of bikers. I was just out the other day and, you know, two feet of snow and tromping around. And these two people come up with sleds like way up high. And I'm like, where did you come from? And the lady was super sweet. She was like, so if you get something, how do you get it out of here? Mm. And I was just like, oh yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, and I just kind of talking and, but that etiquette I think is key too. I mean, I, in my mind, I'm like, I never know who is up here and what voting power they have and what, you know, if they're having lunch with a Senator tomorrow, (laughs) yeah, yeah. I ran into some jerk bow hunter up on the mountain. Exactly. Well, and that's the thing. Um, I talk about that quite often with one of my buddies. Um, you know, we, we don't necessarily need more hunters. Um, we need, well, we need more hunters, but we need more like educated all in hunters, right. That are, that are respectful, that are, you know, maybe, uh, maybe writing down their story on Instagram just so that somebody can, can see that it's more than just a a kill shot. Right. Um, and, and, you know, people that are willing to, to talk to other people that don't hunt and, you know, at least show that you don't have to convince them to be a hunter, but at least show them, you know, what, what, uh, what hunting is about, you know, there's a famous, although Leopold quote, quote, which, um, it goes, um, you know, there's two spiritual dangers to not owning a farm. And one is thinking that your meat comes from the grocery store. And the other is thinking that heat comes from the furnace. And to remedy those two things, you should, uh, 
this is where the quote kind of falls off in my mind, but you should, you should plant a garden where you can't, where the soil is desolate and you should uh, let good oak, um, you know, heat your shins on a February day or something like that. And then he wow. goes into his whole good oak spiel. But, um, you know, it's, it's very true. It's like, you gotta, with hunting and especially, you know, bow hunting because it's a, it, I feel like most bow hunters are a little bit more passionate, right? Uh, it takes a lot more buy-in to be a, a bow hunter than it does a rifle hunter. Um, you should be able to, you know, kind of explain to somebody, Hey, look, I mean, if you eat meat, <clears throat> you're, you're doing this, right? Like that's, that's just a fact of, of the world. Things yeah. eat other things. There's no like, um, and, and we're beyond the point of, of going back to, you know, the 10,000 BC, right? Like we're, we've had such an impact on this land. Um, we're, we're way beyond going back to that. So we're shepherds, right? We're, yeah. we have to, uh, you know, there is an aspect of predator control that if you just let all the, all the wolves run wild, you know, it, it would offset things because you're hunting one thing, but not another thing. So it's, it's just, uh, I think just knowing how to, and it's, it sounds weird because you shouldn't have to convince people what you're doing, but in this world now where hunting, you know what, it's like 10% of, uh, of Americans bought a, bought a hunting license last year or something like that. Um, I think it's around that number. Um, that's, that's very small compared to, you know, what it used to be. I mean, so you, there's, there's 90% of the people that don't, that probably don't understand what you're doing and, and they just see it like, Oh, you can buy meat from a grocery store. Why, why don't you just do that? It's much kinder to the animals. Well, it's actually not right. It, there's, <laughs> there's a lot more that goes into it. So yeah. I think uh, like having good hunters and being able to explain and being, you know, being respectful of, of people that, you know, don't necessarily, um, you know, understand you is, is going to be the best for, to allow us to keep doing what we're doing. I think we also can't go in this mindset in life. And my kids, I see it in my kids. I've got some teenagers now where they feel like they have to convince everybody that like, mm. I or it's either, you know, convince or be convinced. It's very odd. And like me, I've been doing these ice baths in my backyard for the last year. And recently, just literally in the last two days, I've got these big ice chunks in my bath. And I'm hacking away at it an ax trying to like get water. Mm -hmm. And I, and I did a little Facebook video and everyone's like, Oh, you're crazy. You're crazy. And I'm, and I'm thinking through that and I'm like, you know, I like this. I like mm -hmm. sitting in a freezing cold bath for a minute and a half and whatever, but I don't necessarily like everyone else has to do it. There are benefits and there's science and there's all these things that have come out, but I, I do it. You know, it's fun. It's fun to watch. It's fun to be like, Oh dude, you're so cold. But I just think same with hunting. It's like, I want to get off this thought of, you know, trying to convince people like everyone else has to go out there and shoot a bow and kill their own meat and whatever. I don't think so. I think it's just more being aware of it and having that education. Um, but here on the podcast, you know, these are people who have already chosen like, yes, I do want to do this. I'm just trying to get there a little bit quicker. I'm trying to close the gap on that education. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we're just in a world of, of comfort, convenience and convincing. Like we just let's yeah. convince, let's influence each other. And it's just like, let's educate each other. But I don't, I don't know. It just seems odd to try to just. Yeah. 
Yeah, that no, and that's the thing. It's it's not because not everybody could hunt. I mean, if we had 330 million hunters, there would be there. I mean, there's not even enough, not even enough elk and or probably there's probably not even enough elk deer and and yeah pronghorn and everything in every state combined to to get everybody an animal. Um, so that no, that's that's definitely. But it's it's about just like you know making sure that uh, people understand that what you're doing is, in my opinion, you gotta. If somebody thinks it's immoral, being able to, uh, you know, at least justify, uh, which is weird because you sh- shouldn't even have to do that just because right. that that's how disconnected the society is from their own food system. But, um, but you, yeah, no, that's that's totally. It's not about convincing people to go out and do it. It's just about, you know, being, yeah, exactly. So. I do try to talk about processing, like food processing. Like I'll take photos on Instagram of like my meat processor. I've got the red, you know, I'm processing Mm -hmm. it. I'm vacuum sealing it. I like to kind of close that gap a little bit of like, yeah, my family uses this, you know, look at my full freezer, look at, you know, I think Mm -hmm. sometimes we get so excited about the outdoor shot and it's, you know, we tracked the animal. I love that too. I'm, I'm all about it, but I think it's just rounding it out a little bit. Um, definitely how's your hunt season been this year what's it been like it's been good man yeah it was uh it was actually a very successful year i'd say um so i uh i'll just give people a little bit of background i've i've been bow hunting since i was 14 i think that was my first year that i that i went out um chasing elk primarily i've done little bit of antelope a little bit of deer but primarily elk you know it's just that's like the the cream of the crop um getting bugling bulls in september yeah. while the leaves are turning it's just unbelievable mm-hmm. um so I, i've i mean i'm 27 now so been doing it for 13 years um this year was the first year uh in a long time that i haven't bow hunted um you know colorado but there was a couple factors that went into it. Um, a, uh, September, I actually went to Alaska. We were supposed to go on a caribou hunt up there, um, and do some filming, uh, for seek outside, but it ended up that the, the caribou had all gone to Canada and, uh, we were going with a really good bush pilot who was like, yeah, dude, it's not even worth it. Let's, uh, let's just reschedule this thing for next year. So wow. hopefully we'll be able to go back in next year, but, uh, we ended up doing a, a fishing trip for, uh, I mean, it was kind of the prime time in September. I think we went that, you know, second week of September for about 10 days. So, um, I was out of, out of town for a while. Um, and you know, that's usually when I like to elk hunt, but also here in Colorado, uh, the spot that I've been elk hunting the last probably two, three years, uh, has been very packed with people. Um, and you know, there's just been some competition and stuff like that. You know, it's us Coloradans. We're kind of the the last choice on everybody's list if they don't draw for any other state they're coming here so um but uh but so i was like you know what i'm gonna try something different i also uh just got into uh bear hunting uh not this year but the year before was my first year bear hunting um and i went after them with a bow uh that year um but this year i decided i wanted to do it with a rifle i was really intrigued by you know getting a fall bear with uh some delicious fat, you know, being able to render that. And, uh, I also 
tan the hide on on the one that I got. So I, I did get a get a bear. I got a sow. She was about 100, 150 pounds. Um, wow. So that was awesome. Um, and then I went to uh, my dad actually drew an elk tag in New Mexico for again, it was a rifle. It was an early rifle season. Um, so we went down there and did that and he shot a pretty nice bull. Uh, it was an awesome experience. I mean, we just had, you know, three bulls coming in. It was like a triangle. We were calling them in. So, and then he, he, he was able to get one there. Um, and then I actually did a filming thing for seek outside. We made a film called freezer filler. It's up on YouTube. If anybody wants to check it out, but, oh, cool. uh, it was kind of the concept was, uh, I, I picked up a leftover doe tag, um, you know, just for a, a pretty popular unit here in Colorado for our second season. And uh, we just kind of made a whole film about, you know, we have a we have a series called our day trip series. And the, the concept of it is just go out and, you know, do do things locally. They're not big expeditions. They're just kind of easy uh, thing, kind of like the, the, the working man's hunts. Right. So the majority of people out there are not going on these 10 day extravagant fly in hunts and, and shooting like giant bulls, right. That's just, uh, for a lot of people, it's unrealistic to take that much time off of work. Yeah. Um, so this day trip was basically a freezer filler trip. Um, and so I was able to get a doe, um, got a doe there. And then I went on a, a late season elk hunt and, um, didn't get anything there. It was, it was pretty, pretty cold had had opportunities at cows but we only had bull tags so overall it was a great great year i mean the freezer is filled and honestly that's that's really what i look for and um you know it's just having having meat i, I love to cook so um being able to save a little bit of money and be able to have all the prime cuts of meat that you can use for different things i i really enjoy that so yeah it was a good season what part of New Mexico were you in? You so we were in, uh, we were in Northern New Mexico. Um, and it was, uh, not a, it wasn't like a, one of the crazy draw units. It was kind of a more, you know, low, low hanging fruit unit. Um, so yeah, it was, it was, uh, I'm trying to think of, I think the, near the Brazos river. Yeah, no, that's, that sounds right. Kind of I, Southern San Juans. I'm from yeah. uh, Northern New Mexico. That's why I asked. I'm from places. Oh, okay. Well, if you, anyone knows uh, Farmington, and yeah, that's right. Just right in the the thick of it. It's it's a cool place. Right border Southern Colorado, a uh, place called Chama. That's a big elk hunting area. Mm -hmm. A lot of people have gone there, and uh, but it's it's a bit hard to draw a tag there. I think for in staters, so out of staters, you know, can actually get a little bit more access there. It's kind of interesting. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that's that's weird. So tell me uh, about. I, I mean you know, the dough you got, I I'm always curious. And I like to ask this is like, do you notice a pretty big difference between like a doe versus a buck or a cow elk versus a bull elk? Are you noticing a big taste difference? Um, I don't. So funny story about this. So, um, up during at elk camp, uh, me and my buddies, we were all talking and, you know, there's always the thing where like, Oh dude, like antelope, I swear you can tell the difference, right? There's like for sure antelope. And I've always kind of had the thought that, I don't know, man, like I, I can't really tell a difference. Like, I mean, maybe 
you know, if I knew what they each were, there'd be a subtle taste difference, but I, I wouldn't be able to do like a blind taste test. Right. Yeah. So I was like, let's, let's do a blind taste test. So we had, uh, my buddy from Ohio, he brought over some whitetail, uh, a whitetail buck. Um, I had doe, uh, deer. Um, and then my other buddy from Eastern Colorado, he had a buck antelope <clears throat> and, uh, we did a blind taste test and, Needless to say, nobody got anything right. It was, it was like <laughs> everybody thought the antelope was going to be like the one that they could for sure tell. And they were like, oh, you know, whitetail has a reputation as being the, the cleanest, you know, meat. Right. And uh, everybody was like, oh, the antelope's whitetail and stuff like that. So I, I don't think that there's a, a big taste difference. I mean, I think yeah. I think the biggest thing is the biggest difference I've noticed is just in meat preparation, um, you know making sure like for new bow hunters, man, if you get something down, like getting that thing cooled off and, uh, and hanging it for a few days, like we, we typically, um, I'll, I'll always hang my meat for at least 48 hours. Um, and what that does is it allows the, the rigor mortis process, uh, yeah, the rigor process to, to go through. Um, so, and basically it, it makes the meat more tender. Um, and, I'm not hundred percent sure what the, what the science is, but it, it definitely tastes better. I, I for sure notice a difference there. Um, but, um, I, I mean, yeah. And, and just talking to, uh, we have a guy, Adam Gall, he's a outfitter in the area and his, he runs a, a program called timber to table. And, uh, his wife is actually a, um, uh, she used to be like a, a butcher, um, like a professional butcher for like a high end restaurant. And, they're they're um you know they they put a huge emphasis on meat care after the kill right so um i think that's the biggest difference i haven't really noticed the difference between male female you know species it, it's all you know it, it's kind of all just if you if you prepare it correctly it's it's amazing i mean yeah like uh there's lots of things out there about bear right you you hear all these things about bear and this year i got my first bear and um especially so I, I took some bear to Thanksgiving with my fiance's family in Georgia who are definitely not hunters. I mean, they're, you know, not even close. Right. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I was like, man, I'm, I'm very curious if they would like this. Um, and so I brought a couple roasts and just threw them in the, in the Instapot for two hours with some spices. And we had it as part of our, of our Thanksgiving dinner and that stuff was gone. I mean, it was gone. So, I think it's uh it's all in how you prepare it, both cooking and just before the cooking. Let me ask you about hanging. What temperature do you want to hang it at? Like, what's the highest temperature you can hang it at? You know, I'm not sure. I've heard like 60 degrees is like the highest, and um, I, I think uh, so. Another thing, I I was just uh, talking to uh, somebody that I know who lived in Argentina. And he, uh, made like prosciutto and stuff like that was his job. He was, I don't know what you call that, but I don't know, meat sommelier or something like that. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, they, when they make prosciutto, they're, they're hanging this meat, um, salted, obviously it's salted and that kind of helps keep some of the bacteria off, but they're hanging it at like 70 degrees and, wow. and it's not like a completely dry, like they keep the humidity. I want to say it like 60 or 70%. So they keep it, 
they keep it wet in there. Um, so I, I think, uh, I, I think it very much depends on the conditions, right? You obviously yeah. don't want it to be directly exposed to sun. I, for me, like the ideal conditions are like, you know, 45, like with my deer this year, I just, uh, it was cold enough here in, in grand junction. I just, uh, threw it in the back of my truck in a cooler and opened up, I have a topper and I opened up the windows on the topper to let some air flow through there. And, you know, it was fine after 48 hours. So I think it, I think it just depends. And I think, uh, you know, the big thing is not having moisture on it, right. You want to make sure it's dry. You want to make sure it can air out. Um, so I think that's the biggest thing. Um, it's not necessarily temperature, but the one thing for sure is you don't want it freezing within that 24 hour process because that stops the rigor process. And it, and what that does is like all the blood kind of coagulates and just makes it not, not good. So, but I'm no like meat scientists or anything like that. This most of my knowledge is based on secondhand. So I'm sure there's some process out there, but that's, what's worked for me. I've been hanging my meat the last few to like the last probably four to five deer that I've processed. Yeah. I, I hung them for a few days, especially the late season hunts here. My garage is like 40 degrees and yeah. so I'll, I'll let it hang. And I have noticed a big difference. Like I've enjoyed the meat so much more. The mm. kids are like eating it up. It's, it's really kind of cool. So if possible, get that thing on a game grill. I, I just started using this. Yeah. And the other thing too, when I would pull out an animal out, I always processed it. You know, I always mm-hmm. thought like, well, I've got to break it down. Mm-hmm. I try to pull it out whole now, you know, I'll gut it, field gut yeah. it, whatever. And just have really enjoyed that a lot more, uh, mm-hmm. by taking my time a little bit. I'm not in a rush. Um, yeah, it's been kind of cool. I, I yeah. really think hanging it for a few days is great. Yeah. Well, and if you, you know, like when you're quartering something in the back country, obviously you're, it kind of sucks, but if you're, you know, three miles, three miles out, um, from the truck and you know, you got to pack it out it just even subconsciously, you're going to be like, well, this rib meat's kind of shot up. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to take it, yeah. but you know, if you, if you bring it, if you can get it back whole, I mean, all that stuff is delicious burger meat, like anything like burger is the most versatile thing out there. There's so many different sausages you can make, you know, oh. uh, you can, you can, dry age sausage make you know summer sausage and stuff like that um so like keeping all that those little scraps is great if you have a meat grinder it's it's so easy um you know just to i mean you could probably get an extra 15 20 pounds of meat off of something which i mean if you think about it if you're eating you know half a pound per meal right that's that could be up to 40 meals right there so um there's a lot of meat it's a lot of meat to be leaving so let's talk about packing a little bit. I mean, Seek Outside yeah. really has incredible products and you've got, you know, keeping lightweight in mind. I think my favorite thing about what Seek Outside has done is the tent stove. So I really got into tent stoves probably about two years ago and I'm still learning, but I really like how you have these teeny compact stoves. I mean, I saw you guys at Expo in Salt Lake uh, last year and I was just like, handling this thing and i'm like oh my gosh it's so light it's so teeny uh and it i think it just gives you that comfort of home especially if you're out in a gnarly storm and hit some weather talk to me about 
what advice would you give to you know newer bow hunters who are like hey i actually want to go out quite far where do you where do you like to get people started you know with some of these lightweight gear what's a good place yeah well so man it's it's such a a big topic and there's so many different rabbit holes you can go down into i mean uh but what i what i think it really comes down to is you want to you want your setup to be light right um if you're if you're going you know, three, four miles back in there, you want to be light, but you also want to, there's, I think that there's definitely a lot of value to adding comfort to your stay back there. I mean, just the mental aspect of, of hunting is, is something that often gets overlooked. I mean, it's such a grind, man. Like you, it's easy to be super excited on day one, right. Where you, your legs are fresh and you're, you're, you haven't suffered from sleep deprivation and, and hunger pains yet. You're just, you're kind of just fresh, but once you get to day five, that's when, you know, it really gets in, into the kind of almost more mental portion of the hunt to stay sharp, right. To, to still have that thing in you to be like, okay, well, you know, this, this bull's bugling down in this Canyon and it sucks and it's blow down or Oak brush, but you know, we gotta, gotta go down there because that's the best strategy. So having, having a comfortable setup in my opinion is, um, should be accounted for when you're thinking about weight, right? Everybody, there's a lot of people that want to get into weight, like weight wars, right. Is what, (laughs) what sometimes we call them where people are like, Oh man, I got my, my base, uh, base weight down to, you know, 12 pounds. And you see it more so in like the backpacking world, right? Because, with uh, backpack hunting and, and archery, there's just so much more equipment. You realistically, you're not getting your base weight. Well, I, I should explain kind of like what base weight is, right? Um, so base weight is going to be your backpack, um, your sleeping bag, your, your your sleep system, your tent, everything before food and water, right? So that's oh, going to okay. be your base weight, right? Um, and I, I would say like with hunting, um, a good base weight to shoot for is in between 25 and 30 pounds. Right. And then, uh, typically you're sitting at like two, two and a half, three pounds of food a day. So, you know, it's it's just going to go up there. If you can get your, your pack to right around 42 pounds. I mean, I I feel like that's around, um, probably the lightest that I will be able to get mine with, uh, you know, with the, the comforts afforded. So, um, so yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, the biggest thing when considering going into the backcountry, right, is is your shelter, right? Food, shelter, water. Those are the three things that you absolutely need to stay out there. Um, the other stuff you can you can kind of kind of make do with what you got. Yeah. Um, so in that, obviously, seek outside. We make shelters. Um, and there's all different kinds of shelters out there. There's different materials. Um, there's there's different setups, right? So like our most of our uh, tents, well, all of our tents, none of them are freestanding. What a freestanding tent is, is if you go into REI, that's what you're going to see, right? It's got the, it, it's got the two poles usually crossing. If it's like a one or two man tent, you know, some of the bigger ones have a bunch of, you know, poles that kind of create the form and they all have floors, right? Um, our shelters are floorless. Um, mm. Now, the good thing about being floorless um, there's a couple different, uh, 
benefits to being floorless a is obvious weight savings um so like with all, one of our shelters take like our cimarron so our cimarron's probably our flagship model um it's going to be a four-person shelter with no stove in there once you throw the stove in there it's probably going to be a two-person shelter mm. um and if you throw like one of our our u-turn stoves which are lightweight ultralight stoves we have standard ones which are a little bit easier to put together the u-turn ones are more designed for lightweight and and packability if you put one of those u-turn stoves in a cimarron that whole setup is going to be just over five pounds so with and that includes the stakes and center poles and all that good stuff now and not to not to rag on other other tents because there's different things that people want right some people need to have a floor some people want the the security of having a freestanding tent um that they don't have to worry about you know staking it out it's just all laid out for them but a lot of the times like if you take a two-man or if you take a four-man freestanding tent the majority of them unless you're you're getting you know something super lightweight um the majority of them are going to be around seven to ten pounds um, and they're going to, you know, just with those uh, aluminum poles, it's going to be or some some people use carbon, titanium, whatever, um, you know, that's going to be a bulky thing. Right. Where whereas um, benefit of a floorless shelter um, is you you really only have your stakes. Um, you have your center pole, which collapses down uh, much smaller, but with a lot of our tents, you can actually use trekking poles. Um, yeah. So if you run trekking poles, that cuts that whole set up out of the equation. Um, and then you have your stakes. So the, the main benefit is floorless. If you're willing to sacrifice having uh, full enclosure, um, you know, you're, you're saving a lot of weight, you're saving, you're, it's smaller in your pack. Um, so that, that's kind of the, the big benefit of, of going floorless. And, um, you know, there's a lot of people will take out Tyvek, uh, like house wrap ground sheets just to throw underneath their sleeping pad. Cause they want something to go down. You, you don't want, you know, pine needle sticking up through your, your, uh, sleeping pad there and ruining your whole trip. Cause that's another thing that will make you on day five, just <laughs> want to hate your life. So, um, so there's things that you can do to, to have something underneath and for water protection, but I don't know. I think, uh, the the benefit like once it, there's also something and it kind of goes back to the whole mental thing right there there is something when you when you accept the floorless and you accept like the dirt right yeah and like going to your house right your dirt is looked at as a bad thing right and it it gets in, in the house and it makes you have to sweep well you don't have to sweep in the outdoors right you just you shake maybe shake your sleeping bag off or something like that uh, once you accept that it it's a really freeing feeling once you're like oh like i'm just accepting this obviously you don't want to get too dirty to you know dirty up your sleeping bag possibly uh ruin you know some of the ins insulation uh qualities but um you know a little bit a little bit of dirt is fine um and you know a lot of times you're camping on grass so i don't know i think the benefits are obviously i'm biased but i i just love it and having the stove is an absolute game changer um, you know, for early season archery, uh, it's not as big of a, of a thing, right? Because usually a lot of times it's hot. Um, and, and in general, like for backpacking, our backpacking tents, the stoves that are going to be coming with those are not, it's not your outfitter 
stove, right? It's not, it's not your pot belly cast iron stove that you're going to be able to throw, you know, a whole cord of wood in and, oh, yeah. and let it burn all night. These are, these are primarily designed to spark up at the end of the night. Maybe you save some fuel, um, save some isobutane for your jet boil, um, by cooking on the stove. Um, but then also you get to dry your, you know, say you put your, your foot in a, in a Creek hiking through some drainage, right? Nobody wants to put wet boots on in the morning. You just dry that thing out by the stove. You're good to go. It warms you up, takes the chill off right before you go to bed. Um, so that's, that's kind of what, what they're good for. Yeah. That's really cool. I love that breakdown and just the whole, it is a mindset shift because I think when I Mm -hmm. started using a tent without a floor, I was kind of like, wait, am I, you know, let me ask you this though. Cause I think a lot of people making that shift is difficult. Uh, one thing that I like, I spent a very windy night with my stove and a floorless tent and everything, mm-hmm. the TP and all this wind is coming in under. And I was just thinking like, man, this is kind of freaky. And like stuff was blowing. It was just kind of a wild windstorm. but let me ask you this. Do you have any advice for like, you know, do you ever put things around that gap between the floor and in the tent and just around the edges? Like, what do you mm-hmm. do with that? Yeah. Yeah. So, and this brings up kind of another point with the, the floor, the shelter there, there is an aspect of like these, these shelters aren't for, they're probably not for like a rookie, right? Like you probably for like somebody that is their first experience in the outdoors is, is going out and, and doing a backcountry, you know, going backpacking or something like that. This is this is for people that have a, a base level knowledge of you know outdoor components and and maybe bushcrafting and fire starting and stuff like that, right? But uh, yeah, to to answer your question, uh, there's a few things that you can do. Um, if you're in snow, it's easy, right? You just uh, most of our tents have a sod skirt. Uh, you can just pile up some snow on the on the sod skirt and. And uh, you're good to go most of the time. The, the snow, it actually, snow can act as an insulator, right? I mean, you think yeah. about the concept of an igloo. Um, it, it actually does. If the temperature outside of the, the tent is colder than 32 degrees, um, you know, the snow is going to be an insulator. Um, so, um, you know, snow is easy. Um, but another thing that I'll do, you know, if you're camped on dirt, uh, A, um, you can put rocks, uh, around it. You don't want to put it on the fabric, right? Cause most of the, uh, most tent fabrics, unless it's canvas or something super heavy are going to rip from, uh, putting, you know, rocks on there once some wind comes around. Yeah, um, but sure. you can put rocks almost as a barrier around it. Right. So basically what, what you're trying to do with all these things is just create something, um, to, to keep the wind from going you know, in that maybe inch or two, uh, space in between the fabric and the ground. So if you build like a little, you can put logs, you can put rocks, you can just build up a little dirt to make like a little mound around there. It it's going to be, it'll, it'll keep that, that wind out. And it's another good thing to do, you know, with, with, uh, single wall shelters, which are what ours are, you can get an inner wall form, which is a liner, which basically helps prevent condensation i'm sure anybody who's stayed in a tent has witnessed condensation it just happens that's um it's the science of most of the time when you're when you're camping the yeah the, the dew point is such to where you're going to get condensation um but um but uh it, 
one of the things that you can do to prevent condensation in shelters like ours um, is to actually pitch the tent up off the ground. So there you're intentionally leaving a gap in between the ground and the tent. And that's going to allow airflow to go through there. But then, you know, to keep the wind out, you just build that barrier around the side, you know, build it up five inches or something like that. And it's going to keep the wind out, but also air that thing out so that you're not getting condensation uh, on the tent. So, yeah, that's it's pretty easy to uh, with a little, you know, with just a little thinking to to block that stuff out or a little little manpower. Yeah, so definitely check out seekoutside.com. I mean, your your site's easy to navigate. It's kind of cool to see different options, how people can uh, dive into this. I, I will say it is a transition, but once you get over it, it, it really is so freeing. It's like, mm-hmm. wow, look at this big world of opportunity and weight loss and all this stuff that I can do now. Because I think that's a big thing is like, okay, I've got an animal. Now I've got to pack up my gear and my mm-hmm. bow and the animal like it's it's overwhelming and so yes. uh, it there there is a cost to it but i think it's it's important one uh to think about because those comforts are important it's hard when you get down and you're like ah eh, let's just bag the trip let's head home early that's mm-hmm. that's never good yeah especially if you're like on an out-of-state hunt you definitely don't want to do that i mean that's the biggest thing man like with the stove like that's that's what we're known for and um I don't want to say that like we're obviously not the first people to put a stove in a tent or, or do a teepee, right? Shocker to anybody out there. We're not the first people that invented the teepee, but, um, you know, up until, you know, the last, I don't know, 10, 20 years, um, having, having backcountry comforts, um, was, was really not super, you know, nobody really backpack hunted because there just wasn't enough gear i mean the packs were were 10 pounds for one of them external frame aluminum things and you know and it's not even that functional and but now with uh you know advances and uh technology with with fabrics and stuff like that and 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 people creating new cool things i mean that's the one thing about the outdoor industry is it's just always innovating and you know a lot of one thing for people to think about out there uh, if you're getting into, uh, you know, you, you want to start becoming a gearhead. What a lot of hunting companies do is they pull from mountaineering companies, right? They're, they're pulling technology from these mountaineering companies that's been around for, you know, 10 years. And then, you know, somebody in the hunting industry is like, oh, you know, that, that would actually work for, for hunting. So, um, you know, you can always look there and, um, there's, I, I would just say like, don't get too into the rabbit hole of, of weight savings because then you're going to, there's, there's always a trade-off with, with that kind of thing. It's like weight to comfort. Right. Um, so like if you want something that's super lightweight, there's definitely going to be some, some downsides to it. If you want something that's, that's super comfortable, you know, like canvas wall tent, it's going to be heavy. You're not going to be able to haul it on your back. So, um, you know, it's, man, it's just, it's, it's complicated uh to and it's daunting when you see all the gear that these guys have but it's actually pretty easy it's just like you know get what you want to get get and you know it's a like gear gathering i think is is a time thing right the the first you can look at all the pack dumps from everybody 
on the on the internet for your first hunt and you're going to get out there and there's going to be something that you forgot or that you took two of that you only need one of that was really heavy or you know something that you think you could go without next time so it's just a a, a time thing getting your your gear dialed in and you know just know a lot of these guys have been doing it for 10 years that you see on that and you know they're still dialing their stuff in they're still looking for new new ways to do it so don't don't think of the gear as as a as a uh, big a big blocker i mean people have been killing you know killing big bulls with much less in years yeah. past so <laughs> don't don't get too into it that's awesome well, I sure appreciate it. It's cool to get a rundown of, you know, what you guys are up to and just some mindset behind it as well. And some yeah. great things that seek outside, definitely make sure to check out the seek outside podcast. It is full of just strong voices, good folks in the outdoor industry and hunting. And I love the cons conservation approach that you guys take as well. I think that's super important for people to remember that you want to hone your skills, but you also want to be able to be a good steward of the sport. And, uh, I just love that, man. Uh, Ryan, super appreciate it, dude. Thanks so much yeah. for, for being part of this. This has been episode 49. And, uh, let me ask you this. When's kind of your next hunt? Are you kind of waiting for spring? Is it going to be a while for the next or you, you've wrapped up for the season? Well, I'm always doing, uh, ducks and small game. Um, I, uh, but yeah, I'm pretty much done. I just got a new uh, Matthews V3X. It's my first like brand new bow that cool. I got. You know, all the other ones have been used. So I think think I'm gonna start dialing that in, getting my my arrow set up for that. I mean, I just listened to your podcast on on uh, arrow selection, and that was a that was a big one there for me. Um, cool. So yeah, I think that's kind of the main thing. And then I might go up to Idaho for a little bear hunting this. Uh, this spring if not i'll probably just stick around here and do turkeys and stuff so always doing something trying yeah. to ever expanding that hunting season yes that's the goal it's like how what else yeah my wife always asks the magical question she's like now now are you done now is is hunting season over now and i'm like well no because you know like we got rabbits and no uh, we got we got there's mosquitoes we could go hunting for i mean there's always something to hunt you know exactly hey i mean basically if you wanted to there's always something to hunt out there coyotes and stuff but yeah well thank you so much ryan guys make sure to check out all the great stuff seek outside is doing and connect with ryan and uh check out their gear it's pretty awesome well this has been episode 49 of first generation bow hunter and i myself am a first generation bow hunter if you're listening you probably are too so make sure to subscribe tune in on all the uh episodes we have coming down the pipe and there's always more to come next one is episode 50 gosh i can't believe it it's been a fun journey here seeing this thing kind of expand and and as always i've got t-shirts so snag one 15 bucks venmo if you want one and if you drop a review right now, I'll uh, give you a vinyl sticker and a little 10 by 10, put it on the back window. Don't put it on the side window. I had a terrible thing happen where my Onyx sticker just flew off uh, after doing the car wash a few times. So don't do the side window. It's a little pro tip there for vinyl stickers. Do it on the back. All right. Thanks so much for joining and pass this along to a fellow first generation bow hunter near you. See you on the next one.